What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. My name is Aaron Davis. I'm an investigative reporter here at the Washington Post. And uh, my guest today is Stephen Sund, the former chief of the U.S. Capitol Police. Uh, chief Sund is the author of Courage Under Fire, Under Siege and Outnumbered 58 to 1. This is a book recounting in great detail the lead up to the day of and aftermath of January 6th. Chief Sund, you burst into public view in rather dramatic fashion in the immediate aftermath of January 6th for two reasons. Well, first, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called for your resignation, making you the face of law enforcement failures uh, to head up the attack on the Capitol. And then secondly, very shortly after, uh, my colleague Carol Lennig and I reported that days before the attack, you had requested that the National Guard be deployed to the Capitol and that that request was rebuffed. Uh, and that became the first of what would become a very complex and disturbing picture of law enforcement and government failures. Uh, following President Trump's call to have supporters come to the Capitol on January 6th, and that, that happened on December 19th, he said in that now infamous tweet, be there, will be wild. In the vein of lots of good Washington Post reporting over the years, I guess I'd like to start there uh, with the age-old question, what did law enforcement know and when did you know it? Did the threat change in, on that December 19th timeframe? So the, the, the threat was coming up very similar to what we had seen before. The information we were getting from our intelligence unit uh, and also the partner in federal intelligence agencies were giving us the same level of intelligence that we'd seen. I, I call it MAGA 1, MAGA 2. It was the November MAGA rally, the Stop the Steal rally that happened in no, November. The same one that happened in December, I think it was 11th, 12th of December, where we were seeing you know, indications that you know, Proud Boys, some of the militia groups would be there. Their expectations, some people would be armed. Um, MPD uh, had some armed people before with some of the uh, demonstrations. So coming into the six, we were seeing the very same type of uh, intelligence that was coming up, even to where you know, my intelligence bulletins that, were, that I were getting were saying it is going to be uh, similar to the previous two MAGA rallies coming up. So we expected a large group. The big difference we had um, was that for the six, you know, the previous events, they've been going up and, and protesting the Supreme Court, so the target was the Supreme Court. For the six, their target would be Congress. They were trying to get Congress to sway to um, uh, dispute the, the certification of the Electoral College, uh, and we knew the protests were coming up to us. So with a joint session of, uh, joint, uh, session of Congress going on, I had a lot of personnel that I needed to put inside the Capitol to staff a lot of the posts there. So that's, that's what made me go and ask for the National Guard um, on January 3rd. Mm. Before we get to that National Guard uh, part of the thing, which is so important, uh, can you talk about, you said the intelligence looked the same uh, that was coming from other agencies uh, and your partners. We now know that there was such a, a flood of intelligence that had come into the FBI, to the Department of Homeland Security and others. Uh, can you talk specifically about uh, the posture that law enforcement was in leading up to January 6th? And how much of that was because of the way that the, uh, you know, the FBI being the lead law enforcement agency for domestic threats, 
were people taking their cues in DC from the FBI and from them saying a lot of these things they weren't quite worried about that were being said online? So as a law enforcement agency, and, and your viewers will want to know, I'm the only law enforcement agency for the legislative branch, but we base all our operations on whatever information, whether it's called intelligence information that we have at the time. And what, what was interesting, coming into January 6th, and I've been a, a police officer in Washington, D.C. for almost 30 years. I've handled a number of major events, events that had far lesser of a threat stream that I now know existed on January 6th, where the FBI would have done a number of things. It would have done a conference call with partner agencies, a joint intelligence bulletin with the Department of Homeland Security, or even an executive briefing for uh, chiefs, chiefs of police. We got none of that. Um, and then when I started looking into the intelligence, you know, I was seeing that they were really getting a lot of tips and weren't taking proactive steps to start gathering intelligence for an event that we now know had significant, significant threats uh, being directed toward the Capitol, members of Congress, and elected officials. Specifically on that Department of Homeland Security part, the bulletin, which is kind of this red flag that, uh, that goes up from DHS when they see something, uh, was there anything that would have been triggered, would have changed in, in your world and at the Capitol Police if they had issued a bulletin? or if FBI had said, we're really concerned about this. Yes, it, it would have had, or even my own unit, if we had uh, clearly uh, outlined and uh, provided the intelligence that I know now, now existed. When I went and asked for the National Guard on January 3rd, it was denied in part by um, Paul Irving because of the, the intelligence didn't support it. He didn't like the optics of the National Guard, but the intelligence didn't support it. If we did have intelligence that clearly showed, now we know groups were planning to attack the Capitol, groups had already surveillance, uh, surveilled some of my entry points. They knew the number of officers that were staffing some of these entry points. They knew our you know, tunnel system, they knew our garages. If we knew that existed, that would have given me the ammunition I needed on January 3rd or even earlier. Because we knew, like you said, some of this intelligence existed all the way back to December 19th, December 20th. That would have given me the opportunity to go and ask for mutual aid from our partner law enforcement agencies, National Guard, uh, and have the support to get it. Not only that, a bigger fence. Um, you know, my intelligence uh, unit, the Protective uh, Protection and Intelligence Division or Bureau, has um, security services in it specifically so they can base the level of physical security, which would be the fencing. We had the bike racks out for this one based on the intelligence. If the intelligence had clearly um, indicated that there was a pending attack on the Capitol, we would have put up probably the eight, eight foot uh, anti-scale fencing that we do for the inauguration. You've led me right to this point about three days before January 6th, where you, uh, as you said, you requested help from the National Guard or requested that from your bosses the, you know, to ask the National Guard, and that was rebuffed. Um, that is such a fascinating day. We've now learned with all the things that were going on, uh, you know, at the White House, you had the president that day putting pressure on Mike Pence. You had, um, you know, cabinet members meeting and talk and and the had leaders in the Pentagon questioning private and other private meetings if if the uh, the permits should even be pulled for January sixth. And then, uh, what is it specifically that it's in your head that day? that's making you say, I'm not quite comfortable with this. I want to ask the National Guard. I want more forces outside the Capitol that day. So I, I'd done a lot of major events in Washington, D.C. Again, I knew we had, we had put a large ring of the bike rack around the uh, Capitol uh, grounds, which is a large, a large area. The Capitol grounds and Capitol Square is a large area. And I knew I had a limited number of officers that would be available to, to kind of staff that, to keep you know, any of the protesters from trying to jump over it. Uh, or just trying to try our, our perimeter. 
So when I went and asked, it was specifically because all I wanted was unarmed National Guard to help stand that perimeter to keep anybody from trying to jump over the bike rack. It was just based on my experience. It was Sunday morning that I went and asked, I think it was about 934 that I went and asked Paul Irving first um, and got denied because I didn't like the, the look or the optics of the, the National Guard on Capitol grounds and the intelligence didn't support it. And uh, later that day, we, we now know that your assistant chiefs, that, that there was that um, fuller security bulletin put together uh, by your intelligence division, and that they wrote at the end of that, in clearer language than been done before, that Congress saw as the target. If you had even your own intelligence briefing a few hours earlier to take that to Irving, do you think that would have changed anything in that being the, you know, the sergeant at arms there, you're one of your bosses at the Capitol? So when, when, when you look at it, again, there's been a lot of discussions about that final paragraph at the end of that 15-page um, intelligence report that said, you know, Congress uh, Congress is, is the target. Well, every protest comes up to the Capitol, Congress is the target. But there was so many qualifiers that it may be dangerous. Now, you know, may um, people may come armed. Um, militia may be there. Uh, they had a number of qualifiers in it that we now know if it had effectively um, – provided the level of intelligence that we now know existed, that would have been a game changer. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on to uh, the actual day, because of course that's uh, still burned in everyone's mind. Um, you had been the Capitol Police Chief for about a year and a half at that point, and for a quarter century had been with DC Police leading up to that. So you're certainly, as you said, familiar with large gatherings. That morning, can you walk us through what felt uh, right, what felt off, what felt any different uh, than you'd expected heading into work that day? Yeah, absolutely. I talk about it in the in the book in in detail because I get up that morning. You know, I talk about the night before going home, driving through the city, seeing the, the number of people in the city, the large Trump flags on, on cars driving around the city. So I, I come home next morning. I get up, get my cup of coffee, and I'm driving in. And as usual. I'll call and talk to some of my partner agencies. I talk, called and talked to um, Robert Glover, who happened to be down by the uh, the ellipse at the time. And, you know, he gave me a rundown of, of what it looked like, large crowds. Um, I believe he described it kind of as a mom and pop type of group. Didn't expect any issues right then. Um, so as I pulled into the command center, uh, pulled over into my headquarters and went up to the command center, uh, for me, it was looking like just another major event. Uh, we knew it was going to go long into the, the next morning because we knew there was going to be some objections uh, to various certifications of the vote. So we anticipated it going till probably 9, 10 o'clock the next morning, um, but didn't didn't anticipate what uh, we ended up with that day. Yeah. You wrote in the book, and there is a great detailed timeline of events that day in, your, in the book. One of the first things you mentioned there is a tweet sent by then-President Trump at 6 a.m. where he says, if Vice President Mike Pence comes through for us, we will win the presidency. How aware were you of that kind of information that was coming out that day, the president's tweets and, and other things that were being said that seemed to have later on, we know, bagged down the crowd. Yeah, so when I started researching the book and started writing the book, I just want to start looking at some of the tweets. At the time, I wasn't getting any of the, uh, the real-time tweets coming in from the, uh, the president. And I just thought it was really interesting the way it kind of fed into the timeline about you know, what the, the thought process was, was down at the executive branch, uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, down the other in Penn. Um, as we're coming up on on the attack, even during the attack, so I I interlace a number of tweets from the from the president uh, throughout the day, throughout my timeline as I do the uh, TikTok through the attack, because uh, I just think it tells a very interesting story about you know kind of what what some of the thought process were uh, down at the White House, uh, still trying to pressure the uh, the election. 
Did you have any insight into what other law enforcement agencies were encountering? I mean, stuff that's even taken until like the recent few weeks to come out through the January 6th committee from Congress, that being that the Secret Service was spotting piles of bags at magnetometers that people were leaving behind, and that the park police, uh, that radio communication that shows you know, they were being overrun at the at the Washington Monument uh, hours earlier. Did you have any of that in real time? Yeah, yeah, I didn't have that. I did have that. Uh, I think it was MPD or, or the park police. One of the two had gotten somebody with a uh, a weapon that may have been in a tree. Uh, I did hear something about that, uh, but nothing about the uh, park police being overrun. Uh, later on, I heard about you know people leaving bags or having issues at some of the uh, some of the magnetometers going in uh, to the uh, to the ellipse, or some people not even wanting to go through. Uh, screening. And so when was it really that you felt things were turning, that the tide was turning? Uh, there was obviously the, you know, more like the 1 to 2 p.m. hour that was so critical there. Was it that late when things, when they really saw the, the crowd coming at the Capitol and you realized, take me in those, walk us through that hour and, and kind of the, you know, the key moments for you? Yeah, the, uh, the, the key moment for me and um, was 12.53 p.m. You know, we were working with a pipe bomb that we had found over at the Republican National Committee uh, just less, right around 10 minutes earlier. Uh, so all that's going on at the time, you know, and picture this, I'm standing, sitting in the command center at kind of a front desk. I have a couple of uh, assistant chiefs to the right, assistant chief of mine to the left, and a couple other command staff around. And up in the front of me is probably about a dozen large, large video screens, all showing different, uh, uh, different parts of the Capitol grounds. So I'm sitting there kind of watching, looking down, you know, listening to the radio. My uh, watch commander walked over a picture of the pipe bomb, which I was looking at. It had the wires, the, the, the end caps, the metal pipe, um, and the timer. And then somebody yells, there's a large crowd approaching our west front, 12.53 p.m. I will never forget that. I looked up, and I saw this large crowd coming from the west uh, across Peace Circle and Garfield Circle toward our officers on the bike racks that we had talked about being around our perimeter. Um, within minutes of, of hitting those officers on bike ride, it became violent very quickly. I've never seen a protest get that violent that quickly with officers on a uh, on a barrier. They immediately started yelling at them, punching at them, pulling the barrier away, dragging officers down the stairs. And at that moment, I knew this was going to be bad. What was the first uh, first thing that you did? So when I saw that, the very first thing I did is I had uh, Chief Thomas, who's in charge of operations to my right, I looked down, I noticed the officers on the on the barrier were all wearing kind of soft gear. It wasn't the big helmets, the turtle gear, the uh, vest protectors that we usually would see with CDU. And I turned to him and I said, you know, Chad, where's our CDU? Get our CDU down there now. Um, and then the next thing I did was pick up the phone and call Jeff Carroll with Washington, D.C. Police. I talked to him a little bit earlier about maybe uh, staging some of their CDU in the area. Uh, um, so I called him at 1255. And when you remember watching the the attack, that was occurring as the as the crowd was coming up the west front and fighting with our officers. You'll see pictures of these bike bike officers, the MPD officers with the green jackets and the green and black jackets and the bicycle helmets come flooding into the picture. Those were the bike units that they had staged over on uh, Constitution Avenue. And thank God they got there. Uh, I called Jeff within the first two minutes. They came flooding in. And uh, I honestly believe if those officers hadn't been there, this group would have gotten up to the Capitol much faster, breached it much quicker, possibly trapping members of Congress in their chambers. Um, then my next call, 1258, went to Paul Irving, uh, requesting the assistance, the approval of the National Guard. And, and this is where it gets important. It gets important that your viewers realize that I am the only chief of police in the United States that has a federal law, a federal 
law that prevents me from calling in federal resources, either before an event, like I tried to do on January 3rd, or during an attack, like it was happening on January 6th, without getting the board, the Capitol Police Board's approval. So that was my next call. <laughs> oh, I'm glad that's one thing that's been changed in the, in the aftermath here. Um, fast forward just a little bit. You're deep into it then, uh, an hour and a half or so later, and there's this call uh, that my colleagues and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what happened on this call, which uh, became kind of this crucible moment of the day, uh, especially with regard to getting the National Guard, getting any other federal resources to the Capitol, other than the FBI, which kind of came in on their own. But uh, can you tell us about this call? Uh, did you begin it, and, and what were the kind of the key moments going on here? I definitely um, want to set that call up because you had mentioned something earlier about um, the military being uh, being so concerned about violence at the Capitol that they talked about locking down the capital city and revoking permits on the Hill. What's interesting about that is you know, the military makes up nine of the 18 intelligence agencies. They seem to have such level of, of concern or level of intelligence that they want to revoke the permits. But guess what? I'm the one that issues those permits. And guess who they never told? Me. So here I am on the day of. 150, I called General Walker because I still, from 1258 through 209, you know, I've been repeatedly calling um, the Sergeant Arms 11 times trying to find out where we were on my approval. While I'm calling, I made 32 calls, you know, bringing in um, support from other law enforcement agencies. When I called General Walker at 150, he said, send me anything you got. I'm waiting for the Capitol Police Board to give me approval. Needless to say, I got approval at 209. At 2.34 p.m., I get a notification that the Pentagon wants me on a call. I finally get on the call after a couple of times trying to call in. And on the call is Lieutenant General Walter Piott. Um, Lieutenant General Charles Flynn, brother Mike Flynn, uh, is on it uh, for, for part of the time. A number of other military brass, including a Colonel Earl Matthews that will later become pivotal because he writes a scathing letter uh, endorsing uh, my story, and just uh, not the uh, general story. And then the mayor, the mayor's chief of staff, and Robert Conti, the chief of the Washington, D.C. Police Department. When I get on the phone, Dr. Um, Rodriguez from the from DC Homeland Security asked me, are you requesting the National Guard? And I will never forget this to this day. I said, yes, this is an urgent, urgent plea for the National Guard. Uh, we need them up here immediately. My men and women are getting, you know, getting beaten to a pulp. We need them. Um, they had just breached the Capitol at that point. Um, and I'll never forget this to this day. Lieutenant General Piott says, you know, I just don't like the optics of the National Guard on Capitol Hill. I would much rather relieve your personnel from traffic posts and let them get, get in the fight and we'll take the traffic post. I said, I don't have that option. Every officer, every man and woman of the department is in this fight. I need assistance now. This is an urgent, urgent plea. And again, he keeps going back. Well, you know, I just don't like the optics. He keeps referring to the optics of the National Guard, the look of the National Guard on Capitol grounds. And this keeps going in a circle and he keeps wanting to relieve my officers. I said, I don't have that option. I'm pleading, I'm begging, I'm literally almost in tears, begging for assistance, knowing the visuals I'm seeing up on the front of this command center, my officers being beaten to a pole, being dragged around, being hit with bats, being hit with uh, pipes, is the same images they're seeing in the in the uh, Pentagon. They've got large screen TVs. They're watching the national news. And I'll never forget it. After going in circles a couple times, he turns and he, said, he says to me, my recommendation is not to support your request. I was dumbfounded. Conti then steps in and says, hold on a second. Are you denying the Capitol Police request? And again, he goes back to, I just don't like the look of the optics on that on Capitol grounds or the military on Capitol grounds. I'd much rather relieve these people from traffic posts. I said, I don't have that option. I need National Guard assistance now. I couldn't believe 
the delay I was facing. And this went on and on and on. And at 2.34, I'm sorry, 2.43, I heard over the radio inside the uh, command center, shots fired in the Capitol, shots fired in the Capitol. At that point, I was furiated, picked up the phone, you know, still on the phone. I said, you know, there's shots fired in the Capitol. Is that urgent enough for you now? Um, and did the call because I had to get on the call with the uh, Sergeant Arms tell about the uh, shooting that we had and didn't know if the National Guard was coming. They didn't arrive till 5.40 p.m. 5.40 p.m., they finally arrived, 150 of them. And you got to keep in mind, we had 150 National Guard soldiers right down the street from the Capitol, somewhere with an eyesight. With the, and it turns out they had their riot gear with them. And they didn't move from that location. And the, the kicker is, they finally show up. We put them out on post. The fighting is over. Our perimeter is already resecured. We put them out on post. And what do they do? They line up and take a picture with the Capitol in the background. The very optic they didn't want to see. If, if those National Guard soldiers had been able to get there <clears throat> in you know, short order, how, what could they have done at that point in time with, with you know, the protesters, the rioters, uh, kind of uh, mixed in all the way through the Capitol? There wasn't a line necessarily to defend except for trying, eventually trying to push them down the stairs and, and back out. So we, had, about... we had, yeah. so we had set up a lot, Lot 16, which is right across the street from Capitol Police Headquarters. And I talk about how, how we set up because I've, I've dealt with major events before and, and um, critical incidents like active shooters. So I knew we had resources coming in. I talked to Dave Bowditch over at the FBI about getting his, some of his personnel in uh, as well. So we were, had a place for the, um, the resources to respond, and we had a system set up to move them to where they need to be so we can start methodically clearing the Capitol. We had established three criteria, uh, secure the Capitol, clear the Capitol, and re reestablish our perimeter. So as the resources came in, that's what we were doing. We were first trying to get inside, push the uh, protesters out, and resecure the building, and then resecure the, uh, the Capitol grounds. So they were the next largest cadre of personnel that we had close by besides the Washington, D.C. Police Department that could have been a critical uh, resource for us. Think about that, 150, that 340 National Guard troops activated, but 150 could have been there in short order. Um, that would have been, that would, that would have helped out considerably. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a moment where you thought that you might not be able to regain control that day or that, you know, this is, this could become incredibly deadly? Uh, was there a moment, uh, perhaps around that, uh, the first shots fired, but, uh, is the one moment that, that you look back at that is the, the low point, the nadir that day? Um, you know, when when I first saw them hit the West Front at 1253, I knew it was bad. But as they got up, and people don't realize, um, it wasn't until 211 that um, the first window of the Capitol got broken. So 1253 to, to 211, that's 80 minutes approximately, that my officers defended every inch of ground. But as that group got closer and closer and closer to the Capitol, uh, I started getting extremely concerned. And when we saw the, the big group on the west, east front that had been forming up, then all of a sudden started becoming um, uh, agitated and violent with my officers and break through and start flooding toward the base of the Capitol. Uh, that is when I knew things were extremely bad. So in the days afterward, uh, obviously, uh, you resign. Uh, the, the House Speaker starts that process. Uh, kind of calling out you and the sergeants at arms, uh, saying that uh, need to start fresh. Uh, resigning doesn't always happen these days. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of politicians, a lot of uh, folks uh, try to work through scandal and and stay in their positions. Um, I know you're right that uh, looking back, you're not sure you should have resigned. But what I have to, I'm curious, what was in your mind when you did resign? There must have been. 
some sense of I could have done better. And when what do you look at as something that you wish you had done differently heading into January 6th or on that day? I mean, there in addition to the guard, uh, I suppose one thing we've seen in, in Inspector General reports and others, there were uh, 150 some officers on scheduled leave at the time. There was some old equipment that didn't function that day. Not everything was in the right spots. Not everything could be accessed. What was going through your head when you said, yeah, I'll, I'll step aside? Um, that's what, a, what uh, yeah. I was going to say, that's a, a, a big, big question. So, you know, when you talk about the equipment, I talk about the equipment in the, in, in the book about my attempts to, you know, give my guy and my men and women new equipment when I came on as their assistant chief going through and identifying it because you know, their CDU equipment was, was aging. Um, everyone didn't have what they call an air purifying respirator. Everyone was an issue to helmet. And I've been pushing to get budget and think about it. From I came in in 2017, January 2017, in 2020, I think it was September, October, um, we were able to identify $300,000 to buy everybody a, a, a riot helmet. Those riot helmets just happened to be coming in on January 6th uh, ahead of time. Now, you know, post-January 6th, uh, the department got $106 million influx of uh, money and a budget that you know, my budget was $464 million. It's now 750 approximately. Um, so they're not running short on money, which uh, was an issue uh, for me. You'll see it was an issue for um, the architect of the Capitol with the physical security. Uh, so I, I was trying to get those resources in for my men and women. When Speaker Pelosi went up and called for my resignation, um, you know, went through, went through a lot of thought. I got, they gave me a nice uh, two minute heads up before it. And I talk about that. Um, had enough time to call my wife, warn her um, that she was going on it uh, and calling, going on national TV and calling for my resignation. But, you know, I had talked to a couple of people that have significant experience on the Hill. Um, I did not want to leave. And I'll tell you, my men and women were upset. Um, I still have people contact me after reading the book and saying, wow, I finally got to read the book and understand a little bit more about why you resigned. Um, I, I felt I was being torn away from a department that I truly loved and had developed a lot of uh, you know, camaraderie with and the morale was starting to improve. Uh, so I thought it was really bad timing. But, you know, with everything that was going on and the, the speaker going on national TV, one, calling for my resignation, saying there's a failure at the top, but then going in on and saying, I haven't even called her, painting me as callous, disrespectful, possibly even complicit in the attack. Um, that bothered me, knowing that I had talked to her three times. Uh, so I talked to, talked to my wife a little bit more, talked to some of the people up on the Hill and, and determined, you know, I'll go ahead and submit my, my resignation. I didn't feel like I'd done anything wrong. Um, it wasn't that I didn't want the department to, you know, you know, linger on any, any, anything that may have uh, lingered with the transition or anything. Um, if that's what the, the speaker wanted and she's a very powerful person on the Hill, uh, then, then so be it. Um, what people don't realize is my, my separation date was actually supposed to be the 16th. So we can work out a transition, you know, get everybody up to speed. You know, I can, uh, uh, you know, do a orderly exit. The very next day on uh, January 8th, the acting uh, Senate Sergeant Arms then called me and made my uh, separation effective immediately. Yeah, I remember reading that part that uh, happened a little faster than I think you expected. Um, is there a, you also write about, um, you know, looking back, you've been in commu better communication with some of your chiefs on some of these uh, issues. You know, is there a lesson that you would, uh, you know, make sure that other law enforcement are hearing about complacency, about, uh, you know, even things that on the face of it don't necessarily seem any different intelligence-wise than the last thing. 
Uh, and obviously you've seen a lot of big protests and other events come through DC. Looking back, I mean, is there one thing that you'd say to other chiefs, uh, you know, in the years to come about that, about that very issue of, of uh, you know, staying closer to the intelligence, staying closer to uh, your command staff? Is there something there that we should be uh, looking forward, pushing forward? You know, you know, when you talk about staying close to my, my intelligence, you got to understand, I even had, you know, one of the deputy chiefs from my intelligence briefing members of Congress on that Tuesday indicating it was going to be similar to the previous two MAGA events. So, you know, it was tough yeah. when the intelligence wasn't portraying exactly what we now know uh, it should have been, what it, you know, the, how, how bad it was actually going to be. Uh, I would say if I was to give advice to anyone going in, one, if you're going into a, a, a position that where it could be politically aligned or political oversight for your agency, make sure you know exactly the, the chain of command, what restrictions you may face in bringing in things. Um, I, I do think having the right people with the right capabilities in the right places always helps, whether it's whether it's intelligence, that's that maybe one. Um, but just I look back on it, I think the intelligence agencies, you know, mine included, you know, could have done a better job. I think the um, Department of Defense, and you, you see that clearly in the book, uh, I was extremely disappointed uh, in their in their response. Uh, and then when we talk about the uh, the oversight structure, you know, anytime you have people that aren't experts in security directing you how to handle security. Um, that's a recipe for disaster, especially when it's influenced with politics. Larry, you led me to my last question because we're almost out of time. But uh, you also write that you're concerned that this could happen again. And I look at just the other day, uh, Capitol Police removing the magnetometers from around the House uh, chamber. And that being a decision, of course, that's more about politics and the rules that the lawmakers make for any given session. And there still is this construct with the Capitol Police Board and and the sergeants at arms and 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 others and architect of the Capitol involved with making decisions about security. Do you fear this could happen again, that enough has been done to change the, the structure? Obviously, we know there has been this law passed now that uh, your predecessors, your successors could call in the National Guard themselves. But what else, if there's one or two recommendations, uh, do you think should be done? And Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting. You bring up the uh, magnetometers on the House floor. You know, what, what a lot of people don't realize is there's magnetometers at every entrance to the Capitol. And every one of those entrances, the, mag the members of Congress bypass those magnetometers. So, you know, I think, it, like you had said, it, it was politics when they're put in and it's politics when they're, when they're pulled out. I don't think it's uh, an, an impact on security. Um, let's see. I think, um, I'm sorry, what was the other part of the question? Oh, that's about it. Just going forward, this, uh, you know, could it oh. happen again? Yeah, go, going forward, yeah, absolutely. The oversight, you need to uh, yeah, work on that. I think the department's finally getting the equipment. You know, getting the training is going to be tough because he's short of personnel, but the getting the oversight to where that chief can make a decision. Yes, they passed the law. I'm glad they did. Um, they made it revocable, which is interesting, but they passed that law, so that's a step in the right direction. But politics need to get out of security, and you need to let the chief make, you know, he's an, he's an experienced person. He needs to make uh, security decisions on his own. And the intelligence, um, whether it's FBI, DHS, or my own uh, intelligence needs to portray the level of intelligence they have much clearer. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.